I'm Grant Oliphant, and this is We Can Be. According to Fortune Magazine, in the first three months of the COVID-19 pandemic shutdowns, nearly 46 million people filed for unemployment, a figure equal to the combined population of 23 of our country's states. As sobering as that number may be, the distress that it represents has not been shared equally across demographics. Workers of color and immigrant workers, especially women, are being hardest hit by the loss of jobs and income, and they're disproportionately employed in the lowest wage essential jobs that place them at risk of contracting the virus. The very fact that we are having a national conversation about equity now is due in no small part to our next guest. She is Angela Glover Blackwell, who founded PolicyLink 20 years ago with a simple but profound aim to advance racial and economic equity for all. Doing just that has been her life's work, first as a lawyer who founded Oakland, California's Urban Strategies Council, where she pioneered new approaches to neighborhood revitalization, and later as senior vice president at the Rockefeller Foundation, where she oversaw the domestic and cultural programs. She currently serves as founder in residence at PolicyLink, which has become one of the nation's most respected policy and research entities. PolicyLink has been instrumental in building a potent, broad-based movement for equity, engaging hundreds of partners in cities, suburbs, rural communities, and tribal lands across America. Angela is the co-author of Uncommon Common Ground, Race in America's Future, and is an in-demand commentator for some of the nation's top news organizations, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, Salon, and CNN. She is no stranger to podcasts either, having recently launched her own podcast, Radical Imagination, which I highly recommend. She's been an important partner to us in Pittsburgh and to helping the Heinz Endowments think about equity in different ways. Angela, welcome to We Can Be. Thank you. It's my pleasure to join you. In addition to all of the credentials that I listed, which is a long list, (laughs) you've also been part of the Task Force on Business and Jobs Recovery, which is advising California Governor Gavin Newsom on the state's recovery from the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Wondering, what are some of the inequities that you've seen that the pandemic has exacerbated that particularly stand out to you? And does the widespread coverage of these disparities offer new chances to engage with policymakers about them? At the moment, I am so filled with conflicting emotions. I am sad about all the sickness and the death that we're seeing. Sad that so much of it is occurring in communities that are already hard hit by economic challenges and health challenges. And really so sad to see what's happening to our nation. The economic downturn is just creating so much pain going forward. And at the same time that I'm feeling that sadness, I'm actually feeling hopefulness because of the way the nation's focus on race seems to have captured its attention in a way that it hasn't done in in the past. California is not immune to what's happening across the country. It is people of color who are suffering most. The Latinx population is really being devastated in California, both by illness, by death, and by the economic downturn. And like we're seeing in the South and other parts of the country, the African-American community is being disproportionately hit on all those same fronts. California is taking it into account in a way that is responsible and admirable. 
we have been able to put together and agree upon a set of equity principles to guide everything that the task force is doing. And while that's not unusual in most of the work that I do, it is unusual being in a task force of 100 people. I'd say over 70 are business leaders, CEOs, and they have been just as embracing of these equity principles as the equity advocates and the philanthropic leaders have been. We're operating in a time where the state has a tremendous deficit. And so it is too bad at a moment where there's so much will to do things that are creative and aggressive about advancing the equity agenda. There's so few resources. What we have been trying to do, though, is to take those things that are very important right now. For example, there's a real effort to close at last the digital divide so that all children in California can access learning during this time of distance learning. We've also paid a lot of attention to making sure that the workers who have to go to work can do so safely and that we have a universal standard of what it means to be protected in the workplace. But we need to really think about how to create jobs. I am particularly worried that young people coming into the economy today not only are going to be disappointed today, but they're going to suffer for a lifetime if we don't figure out a way to intervene and make sure that young people can get connected to work. The other one I could lift up is housing. We know that housing is going to be a problem now and the eviction moratoriums are important, but housing is going to continue to be a problem going forward. Mm -hmm. This has really been a wake-up call on the issues that have always been part of the equity agenda. You know, you've just illustrated one of the things that I admire about you, which is your capacity to see how everything connects. You don't approach these issues with any one solution in mind, but with multiple solutions. And I think it's a hallmark of your process. Do you see a newfound willingness in our culture now to finally begin to address these issues? The thing that excites me right now is that I am seeing a willingness to address issues of race head on. And there's no question in my mind that it is the combination of the impact of COVID-19 on the health of those who were already underinvested in isolated, suffering because of oppression, not having access either to the health care that they need to stay healthy or to the environments that we know promote health and well-being with healthy food, access to exercise away from toxins. People have seen that and they've seen that it's black people who really stand out in terms of suffering. The next thing that they're realizing is the interconnectedness For the first time, I think the American people see that if black and brown people cannot go to work, America cannot go to work. The essential nature of frontline workers is just so apparent. And in the middle of this, being shocked as a nation by watching the murder of George Floyd. Oh my God, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. Stop moving. Mama, mama, mama. Tonight, in city after city, calls for justice continue to fill the streets. Take your knee off our necks! Take your knee off our necks! Those things have brought race front and center with an openness 
and a universality in this nation that we haven't had since the civil rights movement. Cable and social media brought this murder of George Floyd, brought this economic suffering, brought this death and morbidity from the virus into everybody's home and people were watching it because they weren't at work, they had no place else to be. And this has created the most exciting moment in my lifetime because we are finally able to tell the truth about race. I loved your phrase that you used just a moment ago, when black and brown people can't go to work, America can't go to work. Because this is, I think, one of the profound truths that has come out in the course of the pandemic. I agree with you with respect to what seems to have happened as a result of the murder of George Floyd and the it has finally broken through to society's conscience at a deep level that this is not acceptable behavior and something profound needs to change. Are we getting it, though, that that also includes how people work and how they're treated in the workplace and as part of, of the economy? I think that people are understanding that the economy had gotten too comfortable leaving people in vulnerable positions in relationship to work. This sort of slide into an economy that was defined by inequality. In fact, it has become more toxic, hollowing out the middle class, baking in poverty, stalling economic mobility. So there was some consciousness that inequality was a problem. What COVID has done is it shows for whom it is a problem. People who are black, people who are brown, people who are in rural communities working rural jobs, people who are in low-wage professions. And the crisis opens up a possibility for the advocates and the think tanks and the progressive politicians to be able to try to do something to show a different way. That is different from saying the American people are ready to address it. What it has done is open up space to talk about it and acknowledge it and move forward. That's mm-hmm. a really important distinction. Ready to talk to it is different from opening up space. Yeah. And in this space, we're finding that people who are running for office are having an issue conversation. It's not just for people who want to solve problems. It's not just sowing divisions, but here are the issues, here are your life issues, and this is what I'm gonna do about it. That's happening, but we're a long way from having an agenda that's gonna solve the problem. You went to the heart of one of these issues not long ago in, a, in an op-ed that you co-authored with Michael McAfee, your successor as chief executive at PolicyLink. It was an editorial in the New York Times titled, Banks Should Face History and Pay Reparations. In that editorial, you pointed out that black families have been slower to recover from the 2008 housing market collapse, in no small part because they're still being rejected for mortgages at more than double the rate of white families, and that loans to black-owned businesses are denied at twice the rate of white-owned ones. How do you see the role of banks in the economic discussion we were just having. What's their role in making things right? In that opinion piece, we lifted up banks really as an example. What we were really wanting to talk about is that these corporate leaders who are embracing the moment and taking a knee to show their solidarity with Black Lives Matter, these same corporate institutions 
are guilty of having used their money and their influence to hijack democracy away from being available to the people and serving their own interests. And we wanted to say that if corporations really want to do the right thing in this moment, they have to not just use their visibility, taking a knee, not just use their business practices in terms of doing more hiring, but they needed to use their influence to move a policy agenda that builds a fully inclusive society. Because they're not just entering a society that is racially unjust. They have been part of building a society that is racially unjust. And to make that point, we lifted up the easiest target, and that is financial institutions. Because it was banks that actually were the underwriters of slavery. And it was banks that actually repossessed, possessed human beings when people were not able to meet their obligations. It was banks that when black people left the South because of brutality, trying to move what they thought was going to be opportunity, the doors were closed. They couldn't buy property. They couldn't start businesses. And it is those same banks that continue to place African-Americans at a disadvantage as they sought to try to pursue the two ways that you get to the middle class through business ownership and home ownership. There's a huge opportunity for the financial institutions to say, we really think we must look at the past. And until we acknowledge that having worked for hundreds of years without pay puts you at a disadvantage in terms of building wealth, having to start off without having any land ownership, any home ownership, and not being able to get it means each Black generation starts from zero. So financial institutions collectively need to say, we have to be part of the repair. And so what we hope to do with that article, which we know was shocking in some ways, the first recommendation in that article is forgive Black debt. I'm sure many people reading it must have been taken aback. What? (laughs) But we wanted people to see that it's going to take that kind of aggressive action to make up for the atrocities that have happened and continue to place black people at a disadvantage to get rid of a system that is based on the black white paradigm and based on a hierarchy of human value that is prepared to throw people away. You know, that's such a profound thought right there about the culture's willingness to throw people away. You know, while you're raising the deep historical roots of these challenges, it occurs to me that we should talk a little bit about your history, because it's such an important part of understanding you and and the work that you do. You grew up in racially segregated St. Louis, Missouri in the 1950s and 60s. Years later, you found yourself called a, quote, Optimist for Our Times by former White House Press Secretary Bill Moyers. I'm wondering how your childhood experiences in St. Louis influenced your lifelong devotion to this work in the equity sphere. One answer to that question is easy. The rest of it is speculative. The easy part is that I grew up in a family that was dedicated to social change. I grew up in a segregated community in a middle-class Black family that was active in the NAACP. My father was a a leader, but my father also started the first, was the first president of the first teachers union in St. Louis, Missouri. So he was very much an activist and an organizer. My mother had studied literature in college at Howard University. She was a reader and 
love to think about things. I remember one of her favorite publications was The New Yorker. She waited for it to come and loved to read the stories. And we always had whatever the latest bestseller was that was interesting in the house. So I grew up in a household of activism, of exploration, of valuing creative and independent thinking. But that doesn't account for the optimism. Mm. And I actually think the optimism which may be genetic, because sometimes when I shouldn't be (laughs) optimistic, I am. (laughs) But I think that the optimism actually comes from having grown up in a segregated, middle-class, Black community. Hmm. I always tell people that while I grew up in an all-Black community, it was the most integrated place I have ever known, because it was economically integrated. All the black people lived in a community. So whether you were a postal worker or a doctor or a lawyer or a minister or a family receiving what we used to call then aid to families with dependent children or a contractor or a nurse or a domestic worker or unemployed, we all lived in the same community. And there was a sense of all being there for each other. I like to talk about my growing up as the adults having created scaffolding that allowed the children to move up and think that they were going to reach their full potential, even as they were locked out of the mainstream. This scaffolding created a real sense of possibility. And I think that sense of security that every child needs, that so many white children can find so many different places. I was Mm -hmm. fortunate enough to have it in Black middle-class, segregated Missouri because the adults devoted their whole lives to protecting us from the sting and burn of racism. My fellow Americans, now let me introduce to you, for the first time, your next Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris. The President's mismanagement of the pandemic has plunged us into the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. And we're experiencing a moral reckoning with racism and systemic injustice that has brought a new coalition of conscience to the streets of our country demanding change. America is crying out for leadership. We're sitting here talking at the precise moment when a black woman has been selected to be the vice presidential candidate for the Democratic Party. What's the reaction of that optimist who grew up in a very different era to a development like that? Not the same as it was when Barack Obama was elected president of the United States. That was an extraordinary moment because something happened that I had no expectation I would see in my lifetime. Here's a black person who has good policies in mind, who comes from community organizing, who represents so much that seemed positive. Of course, I was all in to try to help him get elected, but I was still shocked that he got elected. (laughs) I did not expect the United States of America to do that. And I remember just being so filled with pride and hope. There was a sense that America is taking a great leap forward. America, we have come so far. We have seen so much, but there's so much more to do. This is our moment. This is our time to put 
our people back to work and open doors of opportunity for our kids, to restore prosperity and promote the cause of peace, to reclaim the American dream and reaffirm that fundamental truth that out of many we are one, that while we breathe we hope, and where we are met with cynicism and doubt and those who tell us that we can't, we will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Thank you. God bless you. And may God bless the United States of America. We saw the reality set in very quickly. The backlash began to happen. The hate came out. The shutdown in terms of cooperation with Congress, the disrespect. So I, having experienced that, this moment when a black woman is uh, on a ticket to be vice president of the United States, it's fitting. We've been ready for it for a long time, been ready as women, been ready as black women. This is an important thing and we will hope for the best, but it is going to take a lot for this nation to get on the other side. And sadly, in the past decade plus, we have been going backwards racially. People have been saying things in public that you did not say. People have been expressing views that were not expressed. And it's been even worse recently. And so my hope is that this period we've been in with COVID, that has been a racial awakening and people have been learning history and they have been seeing new possibilities. If we can attach that to what it means to have a black woman on the ticket and really use these opportunities to find new platforms and stand on them and make sure that they represent not just platforms, but firm foundations and spiral up from there. That's what I'm hoping. I love that term, spiral up. We can't have this conversation without dealing with the reality of the Trump mm. presidency and the resurgence that you've described already of hateful patterns and speech and behaviors that we've known existed. They've been there for a long, long, long time, but they had become more and more socially unacceptable, it seemed. And then all of a sudden, we're in a place in the country where it's everywhere, I'm curious how you have reacted to that development and what has continued to fuel your work even in these dark days. These certainly are dark days in terms of the attitudes that so many millions of the American people are expressing overtly and through their actions, even if they're not saying it. I will tell you that as a black person, I always understood that there was a lot of racism in America and that it was capable of violence and killing and viciousness, I thought it was more of a minority than it obviously is. I think it is probably a good thing that we know where we are because we have been starting from a false place, those of us trying to build a fully inclusive society. We have been doing our work mm -hmm. under false assumptions about how far we had to go. The truth that I know, which is that if we get it right, for those who have been left behind, America will benefit. When everybody is able to put in their peace, the benefits will cascade to all. I know that is true. Right. And I know that if we have enough time to be able to demonstrate what it means to be able to have everybody putting in their best, eventually everyone will see that. But what it has done for me, it has focused me away from strategies that think we have to win the hearts and minds of the haters. We're gonna have to show the haters by continuing to go forward, building a fully inclusive society 
and helping particularly those people who have been filled with fear and hate, who think that something is taken away from them, who will understand that when we finally fundamentally address the issues that have been holding black and brown people back, they're the same issues that have been holding them back. That when I talked about there being a hierarchy of human value in this nation, it is so ingrained in society that like a parasite, it has the ability to jump host. So that in the beginning of the COVID-19 uh, crisis, there was an early discussion about elderly people. And they weren't talking about elderly black and brown people. They were talking about elderly white people giving up their lives to save the economy. Welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. So very early on in this crisis, we welcome Lieutenant Governor of Texas, Dan Patrick, onto this program. He took a very different point of view from that of a lot of politicians at the time. It seemed brave, agree or not. No one reached out to me and said, uh, as a senior citizen, are you willing to take a chance on your survival in exchange for keeping the America that all America loves for your children and grandchildren? And if that's the exchange, I'm all in. And that doesn't make me noble or brave or anything like that. I just think there are lots of grandparents out there in this country like me. I have six grandchildren. And I want to, you know, live smart, but I don't want the whole country to be sacrificed. That is a classic example of the hierarchy of human value narrative jumping holes so that anybody can be sacrificed. But before that, we saw that the economy actually had a hierarchy of human value that placed poor working class white people in a basket where they too could be sacrificed. And what happened was the opiate crisis and the suicides and all the things we've seen happen with working class white people who were in a part of the economy that people were ready to just throw them away. And so if we could get at the fundamentals of how do we build a vibrant democracy in which everybody can participate? How do we build a vital economy in which everybody can participate? then everybody is going to benefit from that. That is such a powerful and important notion of knowing where you stand and having a strategy that you build based on that knowledge. And I think what you just spelled out is the soul of wisdom. Mm -hmm. You've written extensively about the concept of radical imagination, and you've made it the title of your podcast. And I think what you're describing is in some ways right now, an act of radical imagination. But why is that phrase so important to you? And how do you think it ought to be inspiring to the rest of us right now? In April of 2018, a little over two years ago, PolicyLink had its every three or four years summit in Chicago. And the name of that summit was Our Power, Our Future, Our Nation. In many ways, we were anticipating at PolicyLink the moment that we're in now. We were already feeling something different happening around the nation in terms of people of color who were coming together with people who were white and wanting to see a better world, really having great ideas about what we needed to do differently in areas of housing and policing and uh, community development. And we wanted to begin to think about the power that collectively we could have if we really came together through transformative solidarity. To think about the future, because the shifting demographics 
that will be the story of the 21st century in the United States of America, becoming a nation that was solidly majority white to becoming a nation that is solidly majority people of color and what the implications are for that. That is the way the future is going to be defined, to begin to define that future. And then our nation, because once you are the majority of people in the nation, it is time to stop standing on the outside, making demands and seeking respect and inclusion and begin to own the place that you live and provide leadership for it. Our power, our future, our nation. When I gave the opening uh, keynote and stepped onto the stage, it was a keynote that we had entitled Radical Imagination Fueling Change, because we wanted to start off the conversation for the people who were there saying, you've joined us and you've come in the thousands. We had over 4,500 people who attended that summit. We wanted people to understand that if we're going to be leaders to try to create a fully inclusive nation, we have to acknowledge that it has never been fully inclusive and there's no evidence it ever intended to be. But as we step into our leadership role, let's let our creativity and our imaginations drive us, define our North Stars, and then back into the kind of institutions that we're gonna to need to take that journey. It's our radical imagination that's going to fuel our policies and the change that we need. And then once I actually stepped into the role of founder in residence and thought about how can I continue to amplify these ideas, even as I'm not leading the day to day work, a podcast seemed to be a good way to be able to interview people who <laughs> had radical imagination and see what they had to say. You have passed the service to community gene on to your son who served in the Oakland city government, now heads the San Francisco Foundation and is a, I must say, a very valued colleague. He has said jokingly that he had childhood nights where he was dragged to council meetings, mom, <laughs> and community meetings by his super engaged family. Are you hopeful as you see new generations of leaders taking up the equity movement? I am so excited about the new generations and the way that they have taken up the equity movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, the bringing voice back to working people movement. They are really something. They are both embracing the values and the strategies that we've been working for for a long time. And they have the audacity <laughs> to go way past it. And they, they're brave and they're consistent. I also think so many people in my generation and younger than, than I am have understood that we need this audacity that these young people are bringing forward. We have known this truth that they are telling. We have understood the limitations of civil rights. It's got to be more than a right to vote, to be able to vote, more than a right not to be discriminated against, to be able to really reach your full potential in the workplace. We've always understood that, but we grew up in times where you couldn't talk about it, where you were marginalized, where you never got to stay at the table. And so we don't have to wonder whether or not we're right. We always knew they were right. We just didn't know you could say it. And now that we're in an atmosphere where you can say it, we can be one. This is the moment to be alive. And I am happy to be here and on the edge of my seat, waiting to see how this is going to turn out. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. We always ask our guests, the name of this program is We Can Be. And 
what do you believe we can be? How would you end that, that statement? I'm sure I'm not the first to do this, but we can be better. Oh, we can do better. We can be better. We can hope for better. And I think we will be. We will be better after this COVID-19 crisis because so much has been brought to the fore that has been lurking in the corners and in the background. And once you see it clearly, many people will never unsee it until it is right. I think that's a beautiful statement. As I reflect back on the things that I heard from you in this brief interview, there's so much to take away. You've just painted, I think, a very sobering and realistic sense of what the challenges are that face us in dealing with both issues of racial injustice and of the aftermath of COVID. But you are very methodical in laying out how we can begin to address that by connecting all of the dots and all of the pieces I love the way in which you talk about the moment that we're in, about the willingness that the country has to finally address race head on, how hopeful you are about that, the audacity of youth. I thought that's brilliant. At the same time, that's tempered by, I think, a very realistic picture of what the last four years have expressed in terms of the country's deep, unresolved issues around race and hatred and violence and your notion that we should therefore ground ourselves in an honest sense of where we are and not kid ourselves about the work ahead, I think is an important reminder for everybody who cares about these issues. You raised for us, I think, critical, important notions about the type of economy we're operating in, that COVID and all of its dynamics have forced us to confront a new way in which we have built an economy defined on inequality. And then you've spoken about the role of the corporate sector in undoing that and that it needs to confront how it's hijacked the very democracy of which we're all a part. You raised a critically important notion, too, about the hierarchy of oppression in the in the country and that anybody who thinks that the oppression of Black people can easily stop there is forgetting the lesson that you just raised up in this conversation about what has happened in how we've viewed the elderly as dispensable suddenly. When we're willing to sacrifice anyone, we're willing to sacrifice ultimately everyone. And finally, I guess I would just say that you conveyed in your discussion such optimism in the midst of pandemic and economic collapse and all of that, you're still hopeful about the type of society we can create. 